Welcome to BIB Today, the daily business show from the newsroom at Business in Vancouver. I'm Haley Wooden, Executive Editor at BIV. The extradition proceedings regarding Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou are ongoing at this point in time in Vancouver and over in China, trials taking place behind closed doors for two Canadians who have been detained over there for two years and counting. I'm joined today by Dr. Robert Hanlon to talk about the Canada-China relationship at this point in time. He's an Associate Professor in Political Science at Thompson Rivers University with specializations in human security and a special interest in China and Southeast Asian politics. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start with, uh, well, maybe not so straightforward or simple a question, but what sounds on the surface like a simple question. How would you describe Canada-China relations at this point in time? Yeah, I think we're at an all-time low uh, historically. It's it's quite uh, remarkable and unprecedented, just even trying to analyze it. Uh, new developments seemingly weekly, uh, but it's also a, a problem not only for Canada, but also our allies. Uh, it's a, a problem that's, that's, that's gripping kind of, we might say, our traditional uh, alliances. So it's not something that is, we're in it alone. It's, it's certainly something that other countries are experiencing. But um, I would say the general relations between China and Western countries right now are, are at a historic low. And so we, of course, have these ongoing legal or diplomatic issues with China, but that wouldn't necessarily be the case for other countries. So what more broadly, what's sort of happening between China and some Western allies of Canada? Well, a lot of this stems from different, I would say, perspectives on on, on world order. Um, you know, China has a, a view that it's, you know, it's accomplished tremendous amounts of development it's, it's worked hard, it's, it's done, uh, it's come out of a, a century of humiliation, it's, it's worked on its nationalism. There's all kinds of domestic politics going on and, and now we're in a year that's the 100th centenary of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, China has officially declared an end to ab- absolute poverty in the country officially, um, you know, and it's hosting the 2022 Olympics. So China is has this, a lot of things that it's trying to be proud of uh, and it's feeling like it's being pushed back and not getting the respect uh, it deserves. And in, in some ways, it feels like it's being embarrassed and targeted. So China is coming at it from a, a perspective of this kind of rising uh, development, developing nation about to take its place, its rightful place in, 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 in international community. Uh, but it's being pushed back by those that are holding power. And this is kind of underlying a lot of the tensions. I mean, we're seeing different types of economic uh, development models. We're seeing different perspectives on human rights. We're seeing different perspectives on political organization and also especially rule of law. And all these things are are coming to a head right now. Uh, they're exacerbated under the Trump administration, so uh, we can't uh, dismiss that. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of underlying things that uh, I think need to be worked on between the West and, and China. Uh, not an easy question, but what's your sense in terms of how we get past that? Because I know many Western countries have serious concerns about, for example, human rights abuses taking place in China, whereas it seems as though China kind of, as you pointed out, wants to say, well, look at all these amazing things we're doing. Forget about those issues and focus on the positives. Easier said than done for countries that care a lot about human rights. You know, one of the things I think China is is desperately trying to communicate is that uh, there's other ways of governance and management in the world. And if you look at its statements from its foreign ministry, it talks about something called multipolarity, meaning there's other centers of power 
uh, in, on Earth. And so not just Washington, D.C., not just London or Brussels, but also Beijing, also Moscow, other centers. And so uh, China's really trying to communicate this and saying that we're being pushed back uh, and not allowed to do our, our approach to development and politics. Um, and so I think one of the ways forward to this is, is really, you know, we are witnessing change in, in, in kind of global international relations. And, and part of that's going to be on both sides coming to terms that a change is happening. And it's going to be trying to find more common ground than what we don't have in common. And, and our political systems, uh, our values are certainly things that are being, uh, are, are, up, are clashing at the moment. They're being, uh, as, as some writers have referred to as, as, as a weaponization of values. Uh, it's, been, it's been quite aggressive on both sides. And so moving forward is really gonna be about finding those apolitical pragmatic things that we can work on together. And there's a whole range of them, but it's gonna take effort on, on both sides. I mean, just to come to mind, we have a lot of common ground on, on educational and academic exchange. We have you know exchanges on sustainable development, the environment and climate change. Uh, we have mutual interests in agribusiness and Western uh, trade in our country itself, uh, business relations, people to people relations. But these are gonna have to be really thought of in a pragmatic way and in a, in a non-political way and kind of finding, a, um, figuring out in, in the Canadian context, you know, what are our no-go areas that we want to do uh, business with China, areas that we are not going to want to compromise on, but finding the ones that we we will work with China. And so it, that's going to be a lot of hard work, but uh, I do see a lot of positives and, uh, and opportunity. Uh, it, we just have to get there. Do you think these outstanding diplomatic issues with the two Michaels and Meng Wanzhou need to first be resolved before we can begin to focus on shared interests? I think so. Uh, I think China's um, just the China brand and its its the, the reputation of the Communist Party in China is 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 at uh, catastrophic public opinion lows. Again, not just in Canada, uh, but the West, and that and that's not going to change overnight. And there's a lot of trust issues. There's a lot of issues that not only Canada. Uh, Canadian citizens have, but Canadian business and 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 uh, Canadian politicians are, you know, it's not just not just going to wake up tomorrow and say, okay, things are going to go back to normal. It's not going to happen like that. There, there, in many ways, needs to be almost a long-term type of peace building done in a non-political way with China to kind of get those relations back on track. And in some ways, Canada does need to, you know, we must do this because this is the world's second largest economy. It's about to become the world's largest economy. Um, we can't pretend that China doesn't exist and we have to learn to, to live with China in, in many ways. So, you know, I think uh, the Michaels uh, is absolutely, you know, a, a tragedy. Uh, it's something that's going to have to uh, play out, unfortunately. I do, again, though, see some uh, window of opportunity in the future. If you think of, you know, China seeing and feeling embarrassed by everything, the process of going through the trial, the process of coming up with a, a, a sentence hearing and then releasing them on humanitarian grounds or trade grounds in the future is a real possibility. And if we look at China's pattern in, in, in the past, this is uh, this is a very kind of predictable outcome that they would be doing something like this. So on both sides, Canada and China must continue through the rule of law process, whether we agree with their legal system or they agree with ours, but we're both speaking to our own legal system. So, you know, but once we get past that, um, I do think, you know, there's going to be a, a opportunity, but we'll need to move fast on finding those common areas. 
even with government to government relations at an all time low, do you see an opportunity for, say, private business to private business to sort of advance the relationship in the meantime, purely based on, say, commercial opportunities? Absolutely. And, you know, but the, the most important part of that is going to be political leadership for clear rules and guidelines. Uh, you know, business is feeling very vulnerable, very exposed, especially as moving up to the Beijing Olympics, when we think of sponsorship uh, and we think of just general supply chains of where, you know, products are coming from. You know, business, uh, they're not, their job is not to sit around and think about politics, you know, 24 hours a day. Uh, so they need clear direction on how to how to move forward in, in this environment. But but we do know there's the collaboration and partnerships that we that Canada has in China are strong. Uh, the people-to-people connections are strong. Business, you know, will continue. And in some ways, it's actually been improving over the last, uh, you know, cu- last couple of months. And so there's a lot of a lot of room to work there. Uh, but it's going to be, um, we'll need some political leadership onto figuring out how to, you know, what business should and shouldn't be doing in China. Uh, and same on on the China side is looking for clarity on, on what, you know, state-owned enterprises would be doing in Canada. There needs to be some very clear rules and they're long overdue and it's a conversation we must have. I know you've written before, as have many others, that the future is Asian. Do you think we fully understand that here in Canada? Uh, to some extent, I think there's a lot of people that do. They're they're quite wired in, especially on the west coast and in in west you know in in, in western Canada where you know we are, we consider we imagine ourselves as a Pacific economy, a Pacific Asia Pacific country. Uh, you know, I grew up in Montreal and, the, and just the feeling of vibe as a European Atlantic region. So you know, so there's there is a, a regional differences, but uh, it's something again. I think uh, new generations of of coming up of people are understanding that you know that this is. Is, uh, you know there is uh, things happening, and it's it's not it's not going to take just kind of you know reading uh, you know editorials or uh, or opinion pieces of of, of people that that uh, you know claim to have ideological solutions for the problem. It's it's really understanding the extent of that, and and understanding and talking to people that have, are living through and developing. In, in, in Asia. And, and so you see um, this kind of growth and the innovation and the R&D that's coming out of Asia. And it's it's remarkable. And it's something that, again, we, you know, we're going to have a lot of missed opportunity if we don't uh, start taking it more seriously. And, and in some ways, uh, you know, forcing ourselves to kind of rethink and look at, you know, how we can find common ground in these areas. You mentioned our positioning here, especially out west as, uh, well, in BC, the gateway to Asia or Asia's gateway to North America. We certainly see ourselves as part of the Asia Pacific. Does that then mean that there may be unique opportunities for Western Canada or maybe even BC specifically to help lead this perhaps new era of Canada-China or Canada-Asia relations in the future? I absolutely believe so. Um, Western Canada has long experience uh, not only just on our just our basic infrastructure our ports and and railways just kind of moving goods around the country uh, but we have expertise in the region we have the asia pacific foundation in canada we have the china institute in alberta we have the canada west foundation in calgary you know there is strong uh strong leadership and and uh, and networks that can be 
Labrador, we've got very exceptional uh, programs that are universities in Western Canada that have strong uh, ties, not just with China, but with the region, because it's going to be important to understand that, you know, as much as we want to say, it's, you know, a China century and the China, it's an Asian century and there's other countries in Asia, it's not just uh, China. So we have to think very carefully how we're going to be navigating the region, uh, knowing events, you know, with China's rise, but also our other long-standing partners such as Japan, India, uh, South Korea. So we so we must continue along those paths. But you know, Western Canada has these unique historical experiences, and 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 so I think uh, it would be kind of foolish for the for for the government not to take advantage of those networks and that those specializations. When it comes to navigating, say, the, the balance between China as a center of power and the U.S. as a center of power, or even just dealing with China and Beijing directly, are there any countries Canada should be looking to for either guidance or lessons that can be learned from a country? For example, Australia comes to mind. Where should we be looking? I mean, we can look to other countries. I would almost say we can look to other countries on what not to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I would say it in, in a kind of a joke, half joking way, but, you know, we're getting strong lessons for how China responds, because when China responds to one country, uh, it understands that other countries are watching. So if it were to make some uh, agreement or policy or, or approach to Canada, it would also have to do so with Australia, with Sweden, with Finland, with all its other, other countries. So, so it's not just, it understands it's not just dealing with Canada, it's dealing with a, a whole a slew of allies when, it, when it's doing these relations. So we can absolutely learn from, uh, you know, the negative, but the positives and what, what we've done. But I would, from my perspective, I think uh, we don't have to look too far. In fact, I think we can actually look back uh, in Canada's uh, historic way of, of navigating the Cold War and, and how we were able to be a strong middle power and have an independent policy, uh, still hold our own, you know, with being an ally with the United States, but still hold an, an independent policy. And and, and the, my work on human security looks at specifically this that kind of came out of Canada in the 1990s. So we have frameworks to draw on. We just need to really seriously think about them and get behind them again. Um, I think Canada, um, you know, is a, uh, a country that is, is a strong country. I mean, we're not small. I know we think of ourselves as small, but, you know, when we're 49th ranked in the world in population, we're a G7 member. We have a large geography of lots of wealth. And so it's a country that can stand on its own, but we have to be clear what we stand for. We have to be careful on how to uh, build the relationships, but we but we do need to um, clarify it. And so I think by looking to our, our, our past experiences uh, and, and kind of becoming a bit more confident in ourselves and, uh, and understanding the pragmatic side of, of, of policy and not just the ideological side, that we have to come up with pragmatic policy uh, that removes uh, that political uh, you know, fear that, that I think a lot of politicians have right now and a lot of uh, NGOs and I know a lot of uh, just Canadians have about what the future holds. I want to leave off, Rob, uh, with a question. You mentioned it earlier, this idea of the changing international order and something that China has really been quite vocal on its role in different ways of governing throughout the world. How much support do China's views have from other countries and how much change realistically might we be in for in the decades to come? 
you know, China is an interesting case because it, at the one time, you know, it is a country that has an economic model and a development uh, trajectory that's that's highly admired. And in some ways, its development should be admired and must be, be respected. The country we're, we're talking about lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in a matter of a generation. So, you know, it's a remarkable feat. Um, so its economic development is, is very much admired. And, and you, we see countries supporting that through its Belt and Road Initiative, this trillion dollar uh, initiative that's going to define a generation of, of some of, of, of people in some parts of this world. Uh, we're going to see this again through parallel institutions being built in support for them, so, such as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and other in institutions that China has been a member of. Uh, but, but its political system is not so much to be admired. And, and so it doesn't have many allies. And, you know, there's not many countries in the world looking to kind of, you know, Marxist, Leninist, Maoist political models these days. Uh, so, you know, its politics is something... Uh, Un, unsure, I would say, is, is not something to be emulated, but its development model is, is, is quite respected. And so when we look at it, just even in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a, a range of, of countries come out and support China in its, in its, in its interests around its, its claiming its domestic uh, support. So uh, just recently at the Human Rights Council, uh, just last week, the you know 64 nations uh, co-sponsored uh, a statement with Cuba, China and Cuba co-sponsored a statement suggesting they support China's human rights record. And this was a direct uh, you know pushback against the human rights uh, accusations going on in Xinjiang. So we see uh, China building coalitions, but I think they're much more about its economic success and its uh, and the uh, the interest in authoritarian government where you have, uh, you know, our domestic interest is our domestic interest, not your interest, rather than emulating its communist model. I don't, so, but it does have countries that are certainly uh, looking to it. And so this is something when we see, uh, you know, over the next century, uh, how the century will shape, you know, this is something that countries are going to be looking for. One quick final question for you. What are you going to be paying close attention to as it relates to China and more broadly the Asia story throughout the year? I think, um, you know, when we think of the 20th century, we remember the 20th century, if we think of what came strongly out of it, it was, in my view, international law and human rights law, uh, humanitarian law. You know, these, these defined a generation that came out of violence, you know, 20th century, world wars, Great Depression, you know, it was a, it was a very struggling, uh, you know, depressing century in many accounts. But you look to the 21st century, what's going to define us is climate change and the environment, uh, how we engage renewables. And and if you ask anyone living in not only in, in China, but in Asia, sustainable development and environment is, is on top of their mind. They are living in pollution that is physically killing them. So, you know, we're going to see environment and sustainable development and climate change, and, and that's going to take leadership. And you can see why China and, and other Asian countries are getting behind it um, and, and forcefully going after it as something. So I think uh, over the coming or coming century, I would say, uh, you know, looking to climate change, how Asia and China specifically are going to start uh, approaching the energy and sectors and, and its development. Rob, such a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for joining us with your insight. Great. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Robert Hanlon. He's an associate professor in political science at Thompson Rivers University with a special interest in China and Southeast Asia. This has been BIV Today. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks so much for joining us. Our show will be back with a new episode on Monday. Monday.